Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul, in this letter that he wrote to the church at Rome, he's writing all about righteousness. Now that's a churchy word, but it's an important word. Uh, we've been looking at, in this letter over these months about the righteousness of God, which is imputed to us. We looked at righteousness in the first part of this letter, what it is to live without it. The wrath of God abides on one's life. And what it is to obtain it through the cross, as we were just discussing. By faith coming, trusting in the finished work of Jesus, the Messiah. By faith, we've been justified, sanctified in a moment's time. At that moment of my conversion, declared righteous, declared holy. And now, as the Lord, because I'm a cleansed vessel by his Holy Spirit, he moves in, he takes control of my heart, control of my life. Now he's doing that conforming work, that transforming work that we've been looking at. Because God begins this tremendous new work in the hearts and minds of those who truly belong to him. Now, I want to make this clear going in, and I'll remind you probably a little later too. When we look at these things in Romans 12, because what Romans 12 is, is Paul has laid out all of this. He's done all of this groundwork talking about what it is to understand the transactions, what it is to understand the importance of the cross, what it is to understand righteousness, to understand being sanctified in the process of being sanctified, all of that. And now in in chapter 12, he begins to apply it. He says, all right, now that you understand this, I want you to put it on. I want you to wear these things. And and so here, he begins this chapter with saying, I beseech you, I beg you, please. That's how that's translated. So now he's going to give a, a list of commands. Stronger wording. He's saying, look, if you're a Christian, this is what you do. And now you got to understand that we live in grace and we're all under construction I get that, and hopefully you do too. This is not a condemning thing. But understand, this is not about self-improvement. You know, if I want to go to a seminar, a self-help seminar, I could do that. But I'll tell you what, the difference between that and this is these are the things that address the heart. These are the, and I could take a lot of external information in and learn how to do things a certain way, but unless my heart is impacted, I I like to say, you know, if I can change you, somebody can change you back. But if God changes you, it's a whole different thing. This is all brought about by the agency, the work of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And it's practical. What he's talking about here are very practical things. So as we apply these things to our lives, our lives are changed. We're now becoming about right living. That's what he's talking about here. That's what righteousness is in a very practical sense. It's about living rightly. So Romans 12 is all about walking out the things that we've been studying uh, in these past months as we apply them to our lives. In our, our first study, we looked at what it means to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. In chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. 
That's allowing the transforming work of the Spirit in practical ways, again, to close the gap between the person we once were and the person we are now becoming. Yes, positionally, he sees me as perfect, spotless, blameless, holy. And there's a practical work that he's doing in my heart. And, And primarily, it's by his Spirit through his word. And that's the way that God has chosen to set it up. It's the way he's chosen to do it. We allow, by an act of our will, the work of the Spirit to come in and to begin to do that work. Remember he said in in 12.2, he said that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We simply call that spiritual growth. We're growing. None of us will get there this side of heaven. But I pray that each of us is taking the things of God seriously in our lives and we are in a place where our our lives, our minds are being transformed by the work of the Spirit of God living within. So we look at it like this. The first study was righteousness, right living in relation to ourselves, verses 1 and 2. Last week, we looked at verses 3 through 8 and we studied righteousness or right living in relation to the church as we looked at the critical role that humility, walking in humility has as we apply and as God gives us gifts through which we serve him. And he equips us, he equips the body of Christ in that way. We looked at seven gifts. We looked at the fact that those gifts, they're, they're not, it's not, as I mentioned, it's not the Holy Ghost talent show. Those gifts that he gives us are, are things that he develops in us and he equips those who he calls. It might not even be something that I was even thinking about. I would never have imagined when I was working as a journeyman sign painter back in the in the 80s that God would call me to be a pastor or a Bible teacher. That it wasn't even remotely in my mind. And yet, God equips as God calls. So we've looked at that as we looked at first he talks about us personally, working righteousness in us as relates to ourselves, and then he talks about working righteousness in us as the church. And now, today, we're going to look at what it is in, in, in ever-widening circles. You probably noticed on the, the slide there, I've got like the concentric circles, because what Paul is doing is he's working outward with this. It begins with right living within ourselves, goes to right living within the body of Christ, to now right living within society, within our culture. Next week, the Lord willing, I've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, but next week uh, in chapter 13, we'll look at right living as relates to the government. And, uh, and <laughs> that's one that used to really sting me, but uh, suffice it to say, he's, he's working his way out in these things, in, in widening circles. So beginning in verse 9, we left off with verse 8 last week. Uh, he says, let love be without hypocrisy and abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. So we're going to break that down and, and we're just going to break each of these down as we go. When he talks about let love be without hypocrisy, it reminded me of my first boss in the billboard business, <laughs> a guy named Al. And Al was this guy. He would get clients on the phone and he would be, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, yeah, I just can't wait to have lunch and nah, nah, nah. And he would have all these things to say. And the minute he hung up the phone, he would say the most vile things 
about that. And I shared his office. I was the artist in the same office. And, and I'm like, oh my goodness. I mean, I can't believe what's coming out of this guy's mouth. It is like so different. It's hypocrisy. All of us struggle with hypocrisy to one degree or another, but that was very, very overt hypocrisy. Now, a hypocrite, by definition, is one who pretends to be other than he really is. Is a play actor. You think about the theatrical faces. You know, you see the one theatrical face that has the frown and the other theatrical face that has the smile and you see them next to each other. Did you know that that's where the term two-faced comes from? Hypocrisy. Being two-faced. Have you known someone who's two-faced? Are you two-faced? I try not to make eye contact with people when I say things like that. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, me? <laughs> King David dealt with people who were in that category. Psalm 28.3, he says, Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity, who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. Hypocrites. Bottom line here is loving without hypocrisy is to walk in integrity. The person that I am while I'm with you is the same person that I am when I'm not with you. And that's something that Paul is talking about here, saying let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without being two-faced about it. You know, one of the things I call it, (laughs) I know people that will have a very derogatory attitude about something or someone, and yet I call it making nice. It's play acting. It's still acting. And and yeah, I (laughs) don't want somebody to just come and land on me and tear me up. But walk in integrity. Uh, the old saying, if you haven't got something good to say, don't say anything at all. Don't just make up a line and the minute you're hanging up the phone or out of the room or whatever, going on about something. So the rest of verse 9, it, it, he talks about here in verse 9, he talks about there are two commands. Again, these are commands. These are things he's saying, pay attention to this. This is what being a child of God, this is what being a believer looks like. He says, abhor what is evil. Now, abhor simply means to regard with disgust and hatred, to be repulsed by something. It's like, it is a very strong word. It's like, ah, I just, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't, I just, it, it, it's, (laughs) it's disgusting. So the question then becomes, looking at and applying this to our lives today, folks, how disgusted are you (laughs) with the overt evil that's been unleashed in our world? It's a question. Do you think it's a coincidence that so much in the media, movies, network television, even so-called news, do you think it's a coincidence that those things are taking place, that there's this unifying evil They're openly parading an evil agenda, an evil narrative before us every day, unmasked. Do you think it's a coincidence that the cultures and governing bodies of this world are increasingly in sync with normalizing sin, calling what is good evil and what is evil good? Do you think that's a coincidence? I spoke at a memorial service this last week And one of the things I exhorted as we were wrapping it up and I was sharing the gospel is, look, these are not coincidences. These are things that God's word speaks of. I don't know exactly where we are in that timetable. I believe that we're right up against the end of the age. And yet it's not coincidental. 
Iniquity is abounding. There are things that are going on. And we need to be people who hate evil. That, that we abhor what is evil. Otherwise, here's what happens. We become desensitized to sin. So what are the statistics with, with kids with porn on their phones? They're huge. Totally desensitized. Thinking that that's how a sexual relationship works. Abhor what is evil. As we're desensitized, the goal of the enemy is to normalize evil and to become indifferent to it. I know that that's what happens in my mind. I I mean, it used to be I would be absolutely shocked if I saw someone with an alternative lifestyle on television. Now it's like every channel. Abhor what's evil. Here's some pastoral advice. Be disgusted with evil. Why? Because it's what put Jesus on the cross. If we didn't live in an evil world, and it was an evil world then, it's an evil world now, there would have been no need for the cross of Christ. So rather, he says, cling to what is good. Now, cling is an interesting word. What it means is to take a grip on something. The entire point of verse 9 is what loving without hypocrisy looks like is that we loosen our grip on evil and we tighten our grip on what is good. Otherwise, the old saying, if you don't stand for something, you're going to fall for anything. The choices are there are those who claim to love God but are desensitized to sin, play acting, okay with a hypocritical, sinful lifestyle, or you're loving God And you're repulsed by sin. So I'm not saying that we don't have areas, again, that we struggle with. But what's the the attitude of my heart? Am I growing? Yes. Are you growing? I hope so. I pray you are. Is that a license to sin? Because I know that I'm not there yet. Absolutely not. Never. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, uh, John writes, he says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? Also in James 4, 4, James, Jesus' brother, tells us, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? That means hostility with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Understand that God draws clear lines in his word about these things. And I, 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 you know, folks, part of teaching God's word verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, we deal with the easy things and we deal with the tough things. And these are tough things because evil is attractive. In Hebrews chapter 11 says that Moses chose to be identified with these Hebrew slaves rather than enjoy the, the, the passing pleasures of sin. If it wasn't attractive, there would be no temptation. If there was no temptation, it would be no big deal. But those things are attractive to us, aren't they? Abhor what's evil. Cling to what is good. We all wrestle with hypocrisy. Allow the Lord to work that transforming work, being conformed to the image of Christ in your heart. So now verses 10 to 13 are one sentence 
Let's read it, and I'll read all of it, and then we're going to come back and we're going to break it down. He says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. So when he talks about in verse 10, about being kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, it's a powerful command. Again, this is a command. He's saying this is what being a Christian looks like. Now, the word for kindly affectionate is one Greek word. It's called philostorgos. And it's really, it's, it's sort of a compound word because the word of phileo is an affectionate love. And that's a biblical word. One of the words for love in God's word is phileo. It's an affection. Now, the word storge is the Greek word for a family type of love. It's if I love, this is mama bear, okay, (laughs) or papa bear. This is a strong love. Regardless of your kids and how they behave, you still love them. It's that overarching love that we have in a family. It's that glue that binds us together. The word Philadelphia is what the word is for brotherly love. And he uses all of this in this one sentence. So literally what he's saying is in the sphere of brotherly love, have a family affection for one another. I, I love the term closer than a brother. I have, I have a lot of siblings. I have a huge family. Uh, and, and yet I can honestly say that I have brothers in the Lord that I'm closer to then my own, some of my own physical brothers, most of my brothers know the Lord. But the point is, that's what he's talking about. This is a strong love based in brotherly love, but a family type love, a strong, a durable love. And he's saying to have that kind of affection for one another. He goes on, he says, in, in honor, giving preference to one another, it, what it means to give preference is to exhibit a type of behavior that's far above the norm. Uh, It's to excel, it's to do exceedingly in honoring one another. Again, he's saying, you know what? In In the family of God, in the household of God, honor people with an uncommon honor. Why? Because it's proof of that genuine godly affection that God calls us to have for one another. Verse 11, he says, not lagging in diligence. So what does that mean? King James renders this as not being slothful. You guys know what a sloth is? Very slow animal. They just move slow motion. What he's talking about is a lazy person, essentially. He's saying, don't, don't be lazy. We're all called to have warm relationships with and to care for one another, as we're reading here, but we're also called to apply ourselves to the hard work that is in front of us. And, and specifically what he's talking about here is in the body of Christ, but also in general. He's saying, don't be slothful. Don't be lazy. He, he says, be fervent in spirit. What does that mean? It means the opposite of the one who lags. It's, he's saying, now, if we literally look at this, when we say that someone's on fire for the Lord, that's fervent. A friend of mine founded a church in uh, Colorado Springs a couple of years ago. And uh, it's going great. I, I look at his website every now and then, and they're just exploding out there. And, and and he named it Fervent Church. I thought, what a cool name for a church. But that's what it's talking about. We're on fire. 
And fervent in spirit could be translated with respect to the spirit, I'm boiling. It's a strong word. Again, he has strong words in these commands. The next one is serving the Lord. The Greek word there in serving the Lord is the word duluo, and it's related to the word doulos, which is the word for a bond slave. When you see in Paul beginning in his letters, he says, Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, and he goes on, he identifies himself as a slave of Jesus. So when he talks about serving the Lord here, he, he's talking about a doulos, to serve. And what it means is a humble servant or a slave. So when he's talking about that, as it, as it, it relates to serving the Lord, he's saying you need to serve with humility. You need to be have the mindset of going low. And folks, that is part and parcel of being a Christian. And talk about high-mindedness in a minute, but the opposite of that is to go low, to understand that I, I am called to serve God. And now, understand, too, that when we talk about serving God, very often I'll ask people, why were we created? And very often people will say, to serve God. And I'll say, no, I disagree. We're created for fellowship with God. Remember, that's what happened with Adam and Eve when, when they walked with God in the cool of the day. That fellowship was broken and now it's been restored through Jesus Christ. And so now I want to have fellowship with God out of the fellowship, out of the abundance of my heart. I want to serve God out of that effective service or out of that Fellowship, effective service flows. It doesn't work the other way around. I have known people, I've been in a place myself where you can cover up a weak walk with the Lord with service, thinking that that's what is getting you there. It, it doesn't work that direction. Are there things to do? Yeah, there's lots to do. But it has to come out of the abundance of the heart. It's not a means towards it. Interesting. When he says serve the Lord, the Greek word for... Uh, Fellow laborers, as we serve the Lord together, is the word synergos. It's where we get the word synergy. And, and what that means is the interaction or the cooperation of two or more people to produce an outcome that's greater than the sum of its parts. There is something supernatural that happens as we roll up our sleeves together serving the Lord. Uh, I love uh, the, the Greek word for, for fellow slaves is sandulos. It's co-slaves, it's fellow bond servants. And it's something that happens. Again, there's a supernatural dynamic in it. I don't understand it, but I do know, having served the Lord for now nearly 40 years, that I love rolling up my sleeves. I love getting here in the morning on Sunday morning and pushing the trash cans around. I just love it because I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for the Lord. And I truly, honestly and I mean this from my heart, I do not care how I serve God. I, I do not put limits on him in that. If I'm pushing around trash cans in the parking lot to open it up, praise God. If I'm speaking from his word, praise God. If I'm loving my wife, praise God. Those are the areas in which we serve. We don't just serve in the church. And yeah, the church needs help. We need some people for the cleaning team, by the way. <laughs> I got told right before service. But the point is, is that this is all part of the greater plan of what a Christian looks like. Again, that's his point in Romans 12. Apply these things that you've been learning to your life. 
So he says, he goes on from there to verse 12. He says, he goes into three exhortations. Uh, and, and they're interrelated, but they're all dealing with life's difficulties and trials. We all go through stuff, don't we? I know people in this room today that are going through things, some things severe. He says, rejoicing in hope. Literally, be joyful in hope. That could also be rendered, be joyful because of hope. Or be, be joy, joyful by means of hope. Folks, what he's saying here is, is hope is the sphere within which we experience joy in troubled times. He's talking about rejoicing in hope. He's talking about trouble in our lives because the next one he says is patient in tribulation. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 tells us that the joy of the Lord is my strength. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but why is that? Why is it joy? This thing that God brings to me, that God causes to spring up within me, is my strength. Think about it for a minute. Happiness. Uh, we looked at man being an inferior trinity. There's, there's God, Father, Son, Spirit. Man is body, soul, spirit. But then at conversion, we, come, we were dominated now by spirit. So the way that God speaks to me is, is by his spirit bearing witness to my spirit. And as he conveys hope, or I mean he conveys joy to me, that's something that is that is brought to me by the Holy Spirit living within. That's why people who are not believers can't have hope. I mean, have, have joy. I keep getting those two screwed up. But the point is, is that he wants us to have joy. Happiness is conveyed by my circumstances. Joy, which is a whole lot deeper, is conveyed by the Spirit of God. That's why I can be going through tough things. That's why I can be going through tribulation. That means trouble in my life and still have joy. This is something that's deep and it doesn't emanate from me or emanate from my circumstances and it emanates directly from the Lord. So as we look at this, the point, Paul says that we serve God rejoicing in hope, not rejoicing in results because results, again, circumstance driven, we rejoice in hope, spirit driven. The hope that we have is rooted in that which is yet to come in our lives as believers. So he says, be patient in tribulation. So because of the, the Holy Spirit's strengthening presence in our lives, we can see life's struggles as opportunities for us to learn to apply the truth of Romans 8.28. Remember, we've talked about that. 8.28 is God causes all things to work together for good that, to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. His purpose in Romans 8.29 is that for, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What does that mean? It means he is causing us to behave more like, to act more like, to be transformed moment by moment, circumstance by circumstance. He's causing us to be conformed to the image of his son. We're acting more like Jesus as we go. That's the point. That's the point of Paul's teaching here in Romans 12. So no, no matter how dire the circumstance is, every circumstance will end up working for our good, for our best. So truth be told to, 
Uh, all of us go through things. We generally don't learn real well when life is easy. I don't know about you, but when life is kind of in coasting mode, I'm in coasting mode. And I'm just kind of like, yeah, that was a great Bible study. What's for lunch? It, it does, there's it, just not a lot. I just don't have that real fervent, there's that word, desire to apply things to my life. But it's when those, in those times when our lives are pressed in, when they're difficult, that we learn to patiently trust. That's what he says here. Be patient in tribulation. When we're going through those things, it doesn't mean it's easy. But it always means that God is working. And he is, there are things for us to learn in them. So we're commanded to do all these things with an eye towards heaven. That's why he says rejoicing in hope. We're patient in trouble. And the third thing he says here is we're steadfast in prayer. He says continue steadfastly in prayer. To be steadfast is to be continuously devoted to something. I'm steadfast. I'm, I'm committed. And it's in prayer that the work is done. It's in prayer that the victory is won. Prayer brings, brings power into our lives. Prayer is what, that which brings peace into our hearts as we go through these tough things. So James, again, Jesus' brother, he tags all three of these concepts. Uh, that we see here in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 5. I'll read it. He says, My brethren, count it all joy. There's that word. When you go through, when you fall into various trials, the Greek word is pyrosmos, when you fall into fiery ordeals, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. There's that word. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He goes on to say that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God prayer, who gives to all liberally and without reproach. Reproach means criticism. God won't criticize you if you petition him for whatever it is you're dealing with. He says, it will be given to you. Verse 13, he says, distributing to the needs of the saints. So if the Romans are truly devoted to one another, as we see in verses 9 and 10, the natural outflow uh, will be to share with the Lord's people who are in need and to practice hospitality. That's what he's talking about here in verse 13. In other words, it's the outworking of a healthy relationship with the Lord. If you're walking with the Lord, if you're filled with his spirit, if you're applying his word to your life and your life is being transformed by the renewing of your mind, this is what it looks like again. So interesting here when he says distributing to the needs of the saints, the word distribute is the Greek word koinonio. I don't know if you've, if you've hung around church circles very long, you know that the word for fellowship, the word for communion, is koinonia. And it's the same root word. What he's saying here, he's calling his readers to have fellowship, to share in their common union, in sharing their blessings with others. He's talking about have things in common. Remember in, in Acts chapter, I think it's 2, where he says that the, the the early church, that they got together and they shared all things in common. Same word. What he's talking about here is distributing to the needs of the saints, people who have need and people who have an abundance. He said, let that kind of level out between you. Have a heart of generosity. That's his point. Not only that, he says, be given to hospitality. Again, the word hospitality here is philozenia 
What that means is the love of strangers. We've got a plaque on the back wall behind the, the coffee bar uh, that from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. It says, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Philozenia means love of strangers, loving people you don't know. And what he's saying here in this is be given to hospitality, be given to loving people that you don't know. Extend love. How do you do that? Well, sharing things in common with them is one way. The word given here is also a strong word. When he says be given to hospitality, it means to pursue. So the point in this is to pursue people you don't know with hospitality. Why? Because it's love in action. Love is not just a noun. This is love as a verb. And love and action is essentially what we're looking for in these things. Not just feelings, not just the warm fuzzies. I like the warm fuzzies. But when the, generally when the Bible speaks of love, it's not that. It's not the emotional response that's elicited from somebody having affection towards me. It's the spiritual response of me going low and having a love for other people, that's an active love, an others-centered love. That's what he's talking about. Verse 14, he says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. I want to give you a reminder. (laughs) This is not self-improvement. This is not a checklist. This is something that I have wrestled with all of my life. I do not like it when somebody cuts in front of me in the car. (laughs) And neither do you. I do not like it when somebody is insulting towards somebody else. It really bothers me. And I do not like it when people come against me. And every now and then they do. He says, bless those who persecute you. And I pray for this. I invite you, pray for this. We're in process here. Not self-help. But I'll tell you what, the Holy Spirit is into this. This is the work that he does. He wants to find a heart that is yielded to these things, not somebody that is superficially trying to fix themselves up. God's design for my flesh is that it dies. He's not trying to improve my old nature. He says, no, that's got to go. Let my life spring up within you in its place. As we cooperate with those things, as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in these things, That's what it means to have a transformed life. That's what it means to have a renewed mind. That's what it means to be walking in such a way that we are engaged in activity and in thought processes and things of our heart that looks like a Christian. What good is it if we just get out there and we look like the world? Tough stuff. Point is, these are attitudes of the heart. And hopefully all of us are growing in these. As the Holy Spirit puts his finger on those things in my life, I want to yield. And if I have to yield every day, then I have to yield every day. Talked about strongholds recently, about how the the, the work of the Lord is is, is towards tearing down strongholds in our lives. I'm sharing one with you, with me. That's a stronghold. Does it mean that it's always going to be a stronghold? No. Does it mean that I just give up and I just go out and act like a jerk? No. It means that I and I invite the Lord to work in my heart. I hold those things up to him, to the light of the gospel. And I say, Lord, take this. And again, if I have to hold it up 50 times a day, I will. 
So when he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, King James, bless and curse not, reminds me of Matthew chapter 5, verse 46. It's the same heart that Jesus speaks of in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? (laughs) Don't even the tax collectors do the same? The tax collectors, they were the scoundrels of his day. They were the guys... They were usually Jewish people, but they were hired by Rome to extort the people. They Whatever they could skim off the top, as long as they paid Rome what Rome wanted, they were great. But they were usually wealthy guys, and they were essentially legal extortioners. So he says, you know, they're not real lovable. <laughs> so if you're going to love people that, just people that love you, big deal. Paraphrase, but that's what he's saying. Because this is a love that we don't possess in ourselves. It can only be through the love of Jesus that we can even come close to loving our enemies and blessing our persecutors or those, even those in our lives who are less lovable. Those who when they walk in the room, there's a little in our, in our hearts. And you know what I mean. He says, love those people. Verse 15. I think I might make it. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep or mourn is the literal translation with those who mourn, those who weep. One of the greatest outward differences in us as believers is in our experiencing true empathy. You know what empathy is? It's the ability to truly enjoy another's blessing regardless of how small or how large, without that pang of jealousy. I wish I had that. No, this is an other-centered, again, it's another others-centered quality that the Spirit of God builds into us. But it's not just sharing blessings, sharing grief, feeling others' pain. As I mentioned, I spoke at a memorial service this last week, and there were several times that I just felt that clench inside because as I spoke and I'm looking out at these people, many of whom I knew, and just seeing them just in pain. God calls us to live empathetic lives. If that's an area you struggle with, ask him to open your heart. Ask him to break your heart for people who are hurting. Ask him to open your heart for people that are blessed. Rejoice with those that rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Weep with those who weep. One of the things I love about my wife, and she she doesn't know I'm to say this, but she has an abundance of empathy for others. She's shaking her head. (laughs) She's a very empathetic person. I know, I watch movies with her sometimes. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Verse 16, he says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't set your mind on high things. There's that high-minded thing that I talked about. But associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Now, when he says, be of the same mind towards one another, he's not talking about us always being in agreement. That's not the point. That's not the context. This is one of those verses that's determined by the context. What it's speaking of is harmony in relationships. We can have harmony in our relationship and have completely different ideas about things. Those of you that are married can do this. Seriously, he's talking about harmony in relationships. He gives one do, be a, <laughs> the one do is, 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 is be of the same mind with one another. And then he gives two don'ts. He's essentially saying, don't be a snob 
in this. That's being high-minded. Don't look down your nose at other people. The Bible tells us, what do you have that you have not received? Paul's essentially saying, again, don't be a snob and, and refuse to set your mind on high things. He says, rather associate with the humble. I know very often, uh, especially in our world, I can drive down the street and see a homeless person and I can instantly form an opinion about that without having any idea on what circumstances in their lives lives drove them to that point. Folks, we've got to be open-minded. Yeah, Jesus said, the poor you'll always have with you, but he never said, kick them while they're down. Have compassion. Understand that we are called to compassionate living. As I mentioned last week, when I was doing the food bank, and I began to think, I was starting to have a critical heart towards the people that were coming for food, thinking, well, you know, they, if they just did this or that better, they probably wouldn't need food. And it was like, and the Lord so convicted my heart. No, you love these people. Your love might be the only Jesus that they see. He says, don't be wise in your own opinion. And to me, I don't know about you, but that's a vivid reminder of how far I have to go. And actually being like or thinking like Jesus. So now he shifts in verses 17 to 21. And he goes into a series of exhortations that are, relate primarily to believers' relationships with unbelievers. He addresses those who would do evil towards believers. People who would pick on you, pick on me. To one degree or another. Sometimes severely, sometimes just with an attitude. <laughs> There's that place in me that's like, don't you give me attitude. But no, that's not what he's saying. The Old Testament principle of justice was an eye for an eye. You've heard that. But Jesus implemented a whole new system, a whole new ideal. In Matthew chapter 5, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, I love that, not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn him the other one also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. I, I love, you know, replacing, you know, modern words. If anybody wants to sue you and take your pickup truck, <laughs> I think nothing. No, don't take my truck. He says, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, don't turn away. Now, these seem like impossible commands on the surface, but again, in a Christian's life, he's saying, be vulnerable to those who might take advantage of you. Why? I love what one of my Bible college teachers said, because it's just stuff. Uh, my, my, my buddy Brad, who you saw on the, the screen, if you were here last week, the, we did the distorted pictures <laughs> and all that. My buddy Brad calls it junk painted gold. So what he's saying is, it, well, then, let me read the New, Le- New Living Translation, New Living Translation, uh, verse, uh, on verse 17. He, he says, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you're honorable. So regardless of the actions or the attitudes of others, we're to live honorably. We're to live out in the open. I love what John says. I think it's in First John. He says, walk in the light as he is in the light. 
Verse 18, he says, if possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So the apostle here, he reaches for harmony, but he knows that limits exist, especially between believers and unbelievers. And and therefore he adds, if possible. But I want to note something. This is not a get out of jail free card. It's not. Often our relationships, especially with those outside of the household of faith, become stressed, don't they? But often that happens as a result of our own doing. That's why he says, as much as possible, as much as it depends on you, let God worry about them. As much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. He's simply saying, there's your part and then there's their part. Do all that you can on your end to live in a peaceable manner with everybody. So the last three verses of chapter 12 are linked together as we move through here and wrap up. Uh, And they have to do with when others do us harm or treat us harshly. Uh, It happens in our lives that people do. I mean, uh, many, many times as a pastor, someone will come to me and say, you know, I'm really struggling with this because so-and-so did this or said that, or pulled this shenanigan or that. There's great instruction here uh, for the challenge. Our challenge is to learn to respond in a Christ-like manner, as opposed to reacting out of our lower nature, out of the flesh. Verse 19, he says, Beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. So, question Have you ever wanted to just get even with somebody? Be honest. (laughs) I have. It happens. So what do you do with that? Here's a hint. King Saul, he was hunting David. David had been anointed king. He was not yet on the throne because Saul got jealous and chased him around for 10 years. He was out at a place called En Gedi, is a place where Stacy and I visited, is and a beautiful waterfall there in the middle of the desert, it's an oasis. So Saul is out at En Gedi, and and he and his armies, <laughs> they were out there chasing David around. Well, he had gone into a cave to relieve himself, and he didn't know that David and his men were hiding in the recesses of the cave. In 2 Samuel 24, verse 4, it says, The men of David said to him, when they found out that Saul was in there taking care of business, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. (laughs) Time to get even there, David. This is it. God has totally done this. This has got to be the Lord, because why else would Saul come here now? says, David, he initially believed him. He said, and David arose and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him. (laughs) I love that. That David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, listen to this, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. He's the king. So David restrained his servants with these words and they and didn't allow them to rise against Saul. So Saul got up and went from the cave and went his way. So David rose also afterward. And he went out of the cave and he called out to Saul saying, my Lord and my king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth. This is amazing humility, by the way. 
David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. This guy's been trying to kill him for years, as I mentioned. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. But my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, the corner of your robe is in my hand, for in that I cut it off the corner of your robe and didn't kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it. This is key. Verse 12. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. Here's the point. Simply stated. God's vengeance is always, underscore always, perfect and right. Mine? Not so much. Allow room for the wrath of God. Allow the vengeance of God to have its place. You know, this is actually, rather than being a limiting thing, as we understand, this is a very comforting verse in Romans 12. I don't have to worry about that person who's done me wrong. I don't have to lay awake in bed at night thinking about it and wondering about it, being all churned up about it. I can trust God with it. I can let it go. And I can say, Lord, he's yours or she's yours or that circumstances is yours. This is freeing, folks. And yeah, there's that part in our flesh that wants to get ours. I understand that. Resist that because that's not what Christian living looks like. Verse 20. I'm going to sprint to the end here. We're out of time. This is, therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. I love this verse. So now, what Paul is doing, he's quoting Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22 here. But And there are a couple of different ways we can look at this. So, question. Is the heaping coals of fire on his head something good in the eyes of our enemy, or is it something bad? And people line up on both sides. I'll give you both. But first, and this is what my opinion is, is it most likely refers to a burning conviction. You know, I have done everything I can to tick you off, and you're just being nice. All you're doing is being nice. Aren't you going to be affected by it? Come on. No, <laughs> you can just kind of picture it in your mind. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll show you. Okay. <laughs> you know? So it's a burning conviction that somebody has, that our enemy has, uh, <laughs> because of our kindness. And that's probably what's being indicated here. There's another one. There was a custom that if I wanted to share my fire with you, I mean, they didn't have the little you know, lighter things. They had to make them the the hard way. If I wanted to share my fire with you, there was a vessel that I could put on my head because they carried things on their head. It was like this clay vessel that I could put the coals in to carry my fire to your fire. Either way, it's being really kind to somebody that's not. And that's his point. So either way, we see that we can deflect our enemy in giving him nothing to push against but kindness. Very often when people attack me, they want me to attack them back because then that gives them something to push against. 
the minute I do that, I have taken the attention off of the thing, which is the thing. And now it's about who can be right, who can be, who can win. Folks, it is so much better to just let people have whatever it is that they're jacked up about and to treat them with kindness. It does. It keeps burning coals on their head. Either way you look at this. Verse 21, close out the chapter. He says, don't become, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All right. Now that's, I'll tell you what, total honesty here. That's a really cool verse. And I wrestle. I see the evil out there. I see evil in people's hearts. I see it. I mean, you know, I've shared with other pastors that sometimes there's a, there's a, a kind of a darker side to ministry. Because you see things, and 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 it's like <laughs> there've been a few times where I've said, "Lord, just give me ten minutes with this guy." <laughs> That's returning evil for evil. He says, "No, don't be overcome by that." That's the human impulse, especially when I'm hurt. Because I'll tell you what, hurt, pain manifests as anger. Tell me that's not true. Hit yourself in the thumb with a hammer and see what comes out of your mouth. Hurt manifests as anger. He says, don't go down that road. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. So coming full circle here in chapter 12, we saw in verses 1 and 2 that God's revealed will is that we present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And that's accomplished by being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And as Paul says here, not being overcome by evil. That's one of the areas, the primary area of having our minds renewed. Overcoming evil with good. Why? I love that saying, God is good all the time. And he is. So the principles, the commands, the attitudes of the heart that we've looked at here in Romans 12, briefly as we have, they're part of the key to living joyfully in a really dark world. This is great instruction, guys. We do well to take these things to heart, asking the Spirit of God that dwells within us to perform His transforming work. That's what it's about. That's what our lives are about. That's allowing the light of Christ to shine into our hearts. Allowing the transforming work of the Holy Spirit to have His way within even when I don't like it, and even when I'm tempted to struggle and to wrestle against it, give him his way. Your life will be enriched, your heart will be transformed, and you'll find that there's true joy, true peace in struggling along in a broken, messed up, screwed up, upside down, evil world. Let's pray. Father, again, as we sprint through these things, and just so grateful, Lord, so grateful that you, by your Holy Spirit, take these things, the things that you have for each of us and drive them into our hearts. And I pray right now that each person within the sound of my voice here in this room, watching online, perhaps recorded later, that they, we, would, we would receive from you, that, that that thing that you've spoken to us would be right in front of us and that we would be mindful, Lord, not to be like the man in James who is like looking at himself in a mirror. He sees himself as he is and he turns around and it's gone. But Lord, let us do business with you this morning. 
Let our hearts be impacted. Let our lives be transformed. And let it, Lord, always, always, always be to glorify you. We want you to be enlarged in our lives and our hearts. We yield to the work of your Holy Spirit now. In Jesus' name, amen.